What's up, everybody? Yesterday, we finished up chapter 10, where we saw John receive a scroll that had been opened, and the angel told him to eat it, and that it would taste sweet as honey in his mouth, but would turn bitter in his stomach. If I may, I would like to share one more thing that I found interesting regarding that passage. John is not the only one to be given a scroll and told to eat it, and that it would taste sweet like honey. Check out what Isaiah, I'm sorry, not Isaiah. Check out what it says in Ezekiel 2 uh, verses 9 through 10 and continues in chapter 3 verses 1 through 4. It says, Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me, and in it was a scroll, which which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you, eat this scroll, then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you, and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it tasted sweet as honey in my mouth. He then said to me, Son of man, go now to the people of Israel and speak my words to them. This explains and reinforces what we talked about yesterday. John was told to eat the scroll just like Ezekiel, and after eating the scroll, it tasted sweet. And Ezekiel was uh, was then told to go to the people of Israel and prophesy the words God had given him. Likewise, John was given a scroll to eat and then told that he must prophesy to many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Ezekiel's scroll was written on both sides, if you remember the importance of that. He said it was filled with words of lament, mourning, and woe, which would refer to uh, the judgment, refers to judgment. When Ezekiel is carried off by angels to Israel, he says he went in bitterness. And that was after, of course, eating the scroll. And when John had consumed the scroll, it made his stomach bitter. Both of these accounts refer to God's word being consumed by which, uh, I mean, read or learned you know, consumed into the mind so that it can be taken and spoken to the uh, those who need to hear it. And in both cases, it is sweet at first, but becomes bitter because of the judgment it contains. Now, remember, Daniel is given a word from God about the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, but he has to seal it up for a time. Then John receives a scroll that he is told to consume or read or learn it, you know, consume it, eat it take it in, so that he can go and prophesy what is on the scroll, i.e. God's word regarding the last three and a half years. And we know this, and we know that this is what John does. Okay, so now as we move into chapter 11, it starts with an interesting verse that bridges the end of chapter 10 with chapter 11, but doesn't really make sense at first, you know. But if we take a, a look at Ezekiel chapters 40 through 43, God gives us some a little insight. But first, Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told to go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its and you know with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court, do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, which is three and a half years. First, uh, first thing to understand is that when it refers to the people, it you know, talking about counting them, you know, it just means to get a count. You know, it says to measure the people. It's just 
talking about getting a get a get a count of them. And understanding of the temple, you know, was what they were really going for. You know, go out and get an understanding of the of the temple, its layout, its measurements, you know, and get a count of the people. Almost like a status report, so to speak. You know, and secondly, it can denote ownership and would imply that God is saying that this is, you know, my temple and I have the right to take it uh, and measure it, so to speak. Next, let's not forget that the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD and has never been built, rebuilt since. So the most important thing to not miss is that there is a temple in Jerusalem at this point and it gets rebuilt around the beginning of the tribulation period while there is uh, some sort of peace. The Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel and then makes a way which allows the the people of Israel to rebuild this temple. So, you know, because right now the Dome of the Rock sits on the Temple Mount and has been been there and, of course, defiling the Temple Mount for almost 1,500 years. You know, anyways, moving on. Ezekiel, like I mentioned earlier, sees the departure of God's glory from the Temple in Ezekiel chapter 10, then in chapter 40, after the completion of the measuring of the temple, God's glory returns. I believe John uh, being told to measure the temple and account for the people uh, is God finalizing and making sure everything is in order for the return of his glory to the temple and to Israel. If you haven't understood this yet, please take the time to understand that this tribulation period is the final act in Israel's atonement and judgment under the old covenant that God made with them and that they made with him. Yes, Gentiles will come to faith and be saved, but we must understand it all started with the focus on Israel, then it shifted to the Gentiles with the rise of the church, and it comes back to Israel during the tribulation period. Revelation is centered on Israel and its redemption. This is about God keeping his covenant with Israel while bringing judgment on a rebellious and defiant world. Everything is focused on Israel and their relationship with God, as you will see going forward. Notice that God does not tell him to measure the outer court where the Gentiles are because that area was given to, the, to them to trample for three and a half years, just as the prophets foretold. And God's glory doesn't extend uh, to these Gentiles who defile the the city of Jerusalem, you know they're gonna em, end up embracing his judgment. Now John is told about the two witnesses uh, that appear at the beginning of the tribulation period when the temple has been built. So Revelation eleven three through five says, and I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for one thousand two hundred and sixty days. Clothed in sackcloth, they are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. In other words, don't mess with these two unless you want to be like Burger King and be flame broiled. I'm just saying. So God describes them as the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. The olive tree and the lampstands are significantly important symbols to the Jewish people, and it would have resonated with John when he saw them. Really understanding the significance of these two uh, items, these, these two things, uh, take, would take a lot of time. So I will leave it at this. 
The olive trees symbolized peace and reconciliation, and the golden lampstand stood as a permanent reminder that God is the river, I'm sorry, the giver of life. Like all the other tabernacle furniture, the golden lampstand was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, the future Messiah. It gave forth light, and Jesus told everyone that, that I am the light of the world, is what he said. In essence, these two prophets or witnesses were there to usher in the reconciliation for God's people by shining a light on the Messiah and pointing the way to salvation. Now, they will prophesy unharmed for three and a half years. Some will try to harm them, but uh, will die when the fire of the Lord consumes them. Much like the fire of God consumed the altar with the sacrifice and everything around it when Elijah went toe-to-toe with the prophets of Baal and Asherah, these two witnesses also pray, I'm sorry, also play another significant role in upholding the law of God. The law stated that you must have two witnesses in order to convict or condemn someone. These two witnesses will testify of the Messiah and the truth of God before Israel and the world. They will testify of the sin and wickedness of man so that when God brings judgment, it is in accordance with his law. And therefore just. The fact that they appear in sackcloth symbolizes that they are prophets mourning the suffering of God's people. Uh, Side note, if you have time, check out Zechariah chapter 4 as it tells about the, the two witnesses along with the olive tree and lampstand reference. Okay, moving on. They have, these two witnesses have the power to shut up the heavens uh, that will so that it will not rain during the time that they are prophesying, and they have the power to turn the waters into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. This is important to take note of because while they are causing drought, turning the waters into blood, and bringing all kinds of plague plagues, you know, before the people of Israel. God is doing the same thing to the world, basically, with the seal and the trumpet judgments that we have you know, previously covered. Remember the two witnesses and the judgments up through the sixth trumpet. Um, so the two witnesses and the judgments going up through the sixth trumpet and, or the second woe happen while the two witnesses are prophesying in Jerusalem. Those times overlap or they're running at at the same time, should I say. This also shows that God has protected the temple that John measured you know, earlier throughout all the previous judgments. What will happen is the people will see these two witnesses performing these miracles and will blame them for all their suffering and pain, as well as all the loss. They will want the two witnesses to be eliminated for sure, but there's only one given the authority to do that. And it must be at the appointed time. And that time cannot come until they finish the work God sent them to do. Once they complete their work and finish prophesying, the beast from the abyss, also known as the Antichrist, who is empowered by Satan, um, who is also known as the dragon, will be given the power to overcome the two witnesses and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. That's what the scripture says. 
The location may seem strange, referred to as Sodom and Egypt, but we certainly know where the Lord was crucified, and that was Jerusalem, or just right outside of Jerusalem. The reference to Sodom and Egypt is likely referring to the state of things there, being morally corrupt like Sodom, you know, with the immorality, the sexual immorality, etc., and, you know, and the defiling of everything. And the residents um, at that time will also be, you know, under bondage, basically, to the Antichrist, who will control their money, food, and, and lives, you know, essentially. You know, they will be like slaves to the beast and like their ancestors were to the Pharaoh in Egypt. And so Egypt is also where idolatry was first introduced to the Jewish people as well. So their bodies will lay out in public and no one will give them a proper burial, but instead will send each other gifts and celebrate their death because they will blame them for all their suffering. But after three and a half years, God, I'm sorry, after three and a half days, God will breathe life back into them and they will rise to their feet as the world looks on in disbelief. When Zechariah prophesied about the two witnesses, he said that the whole world would know who they are and be impacted by their ministry. That means everyone will have the chance to hear the truth at some point, but whether they accept it or not, well, that's up to them. After these two rise from, from the dead, you know, so after these two rise from being dead, God calls them up in a cloud back to heaven as the world looks on in fear and sees them ascend into the, into the clouds. These two witnesses prophesy at the temple, and because of their power, they serve as a sort of defense, I guess, you know, for the temple, it would seem, because with them gone, things change. But more on that later. But there is one thing that happens as soon as they are taken. That very hour, there is a severe earthquake and one-tenth of the city collapses and 7,000 people die. All those who survived were terrified and gave glory to God in heaven. You know, then it says, the second woe has passed and the third woe is coming. This is like a timestamp on a video. It lets us know that you know, where the vision of the two witnesses fit into the timeline of the tribulation period. We know they prophesy for 1,260 days, which is right at three and a half years, and they finish their work and are killed and resurrected and then ascend uh, to heaven after the second, you know, after the second woe, but before the third woe, which we know puts them at the halfway point in the tribulation period. So these two witnesses are sent by God to prophesy about the judgment that is coming while testifying about the truth of who the Messiah is, calling on the people to repent and turn to Jesus. They also testify of the people's sins and wickedness, upholding the law requiring two witnesses in order to render judgment or conviction. So who are the two are these two witnesses? We can't be certain. But I don't believe God does anything by accident or coincidentally, and we know that fire comes out of the mouth and consume out of their mouths and consumes their enemies, and that you know, and that is Elijah all day long. From the fire he called down uh, on on the mountain, you know, with the showdown against the prophets of Baal and Asherah, you know, all the way to 
the the fire that he called down on the soldiers that came to get him um and he saw them coming and he called fire down from heaven and boom consumed the the soldiers right on the spot and did it multiple times you know so essentially the fire came from his malice and how he spoke it and God sent the fire then it, it references the power to turn water to blood and that is Moses who first did that against the the Pharaoh. You know, also God used Moses to send all kinds of plagues on Egypt. You know, then on top of all of that, Elijah and Moses were the only two that appeared before Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. But all this is simply my belief. It's my, you know, uh, response to if I had to pick who the two witnesses would most likely be. I would lean toward Elijah and Moses. But again, we don't know that for sure, so we'll have to wait and see. Okay, that is it for the two witnesses. And tomorrow we pick up with the brief teaser on the seventh trumpet being sounded. And then we jump right into the revelation on the woman and the dragon. Don't miss it. Things just continue to pick up speed as we race toward the return of Christ and his kingdom, the new Jerusalem. God, thank you for who you are a gracious, merciful, and loving God, my fortress and my shield. Thank you for being a covenant God, a keeper of your word. We may fail you, but you never fail us. We are stubborn and rebellious, but we are your people, and I'm grateful for that. Thank you, Jesus, for your love, patience, and sacrifice, and all that you endured to redeem us and reconcile us unto God. I look forward to seeing your kingdom and rejoice in knowing that I will one day serve you in that kingdom. There are definitely dark days ahead, but you, Jesus, are the light of the world, and I trust in you. So be with your people and give us courage and strength to press on toward the prize for which we have been called heavenward. Amen.